Welcome, everybody, to Hopeful Majority, episode number four. We come at you every week, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your content, because we're building what I call the Hopeful Majority. Today's question is going to be, is America actually the greatest country in the world? Another easy question. And as you know, by the tone of this content, tone of this podcast and this conversation, it's going to be a nuanced answer. Today's guest is going to be Isabel Brown, conservative Gen Z influencer, somebody that's thought a lot about the future of both the Republican Party and conservatism in our country, somebody that I'm excited to have this conversation with. And as you always know, last week we had on Professor Jeremy Suri where we talked about the complexities of American history and the American experiment. And before we get into this episode, I like to always remind you, why are we actually here? We're here for one simple reason, and that is because people like you and I are in what I call the hopeful majority, the majority of us in the country that are not ideological moderates. We have a lot of strong views, a lot of strong opinions, but we share a common temperament, a mindset. We're willing to put aside our labels, to have constructive dialogues, productive conversations, to challenge each other, but to respect each other, to be kind to put aside our context for the American experiment. So let's get on with episode number four, because we've got a hopeful majority to build. Is America the greatest country in the world? No. I believe America is the most ambitious democratic experiment in the history of humanity. Now you say, well, Manu, that's, that's skirting the question. Is it good or is it bad? Where do you stand on this? And in fact, not only am I directly answering this question, but I'm actually challenging the fundamental precepts of the question, is America the greatest country in the world? Now, why do I believe that America is the most ambitious democratic experiment in the history of humanity? We'll get to that later in this segment. But first, I want to demonstrate and articulate that next week is 4th of July. And Americans are craving, they're looking for new ways to talk about America. We're looking for hope. We're looking for optimism. We need new language. We keep getting stuck in this binary thinking of good versus bad. You either are a fan or you're a critic. That you either have to love this place, or you got to hate this place. That if you're a conservative, all you say is hoorah America. And if you're a liberal, then all you must be saying is critiquing, looking at the flaws of America. But no, I think we need to disrupt that type of thinking. And the frame that I posit to you to think about America, especially at this moment, 250th anniversary of America is coming up in 2026. Next week, we're celebrating our independence, the writing of the Declaration of Independence. The frame that I offer to you is that I believe that America is the most ambitious democratic experiment. Now, why do I say that? There's a couple of reasons. First is I think it's necessary for us to actually contextualize the moment that we live in. I believe that if we are to continue writing the American story for the next 250 years, we need to be able to inculcate a sense of hope, optimism, and purpose within everyday Americans. And so all you hear today is doom and gloom. I want to contextualize and create a backdrop for how to think about America in 2023, in 2024, in 2025. Because right now people are thinking the stock of America looks really down. Why should I have any faith in this place? And this goes to number two. If we don't create faith and hope in a certain place, then people have no reason to actually invest in that place. People have no reason to actually continue moving forward. And that's number two, is that I want, by the end of this segment, for people to feel like they're part of building something amazing and fantastic, and that it is unprecedented in the scope of human history. So let's actually contextualize the moment. 
Because if you think of America as the most ambitious democratic experiment, then we must immediately ask ourselves, well, why, is, why does it seem to be struggling? Whether you're a conservative or a liberal, people seem to be unified in their critique of the place. Let's contextualize this. And importantly, I want to say I'm contextualizing the story of America not to induce complacency, not for us to suddenly lose the urgency of action, but to create the reservoir of hope. Because if you don't contextualize and put things into perspective, then all we've got to look at is the moment. And we forget that there's a 250-year picture. I believe that we're going through a unique challenge. And remember, ambition means both opportunity and significant com uh, conflict and drawback. That with ambition comes risk and hardship and the ability to move something and do something great. That's ambition. I think that there's three unprecedented trends that have all collided and they're combining at this unique moment in American history. The first trend is that by 2045, the United States is going to be the most diverse democracy in the history of democracies. Now, why is that significant? Because a lot of people say there's no point in highlighting something like that. We're already incredibly diverse. What's the point of even focusing on diversity? Why focus on the fact that everybody that lives in the society looks different from each other? Well, that's exactly why we should focus on this fact. We should focus on this fact because there are very few societies Actually, I'm hard-pressed to name even one society that at scale has existed in harmony with so much amazing diversity of opinion, thought, ideas, race, gender, ethnicity, background. The fact that we are so incredibly diverse is what makes this experiment so incredibly ambitious. Travel to countries across the world, travel to communities across the world. I grew up in India for some time. You travel to my village. 40 kilometers west of New Delhi in Haryana. The fact that we're building something with so many people, with so many different ideas, that's unprecedented and that will bring challenge. Phenomena number two, the scale at which we're going through technological change and technological disruption is unprecedented. It's not that technological change is unprecedented, it's that the pace at which technological change is happening is unprecedented. I think the extent to which we're changing, whether it is through the phone or through artificial intelligence or through social media, the last 20 years, if you looked at America in 2000, you look at America in 2023, the place is unrecognizable. And that is happening across the world. The pace of technological change is outstripping our ability to adapt to that technological change. And that specific fact makes it extraordinarily disruptive and unprecedented. And that technological change creates the possibility for significant economic disruption. We've seen this historically. So now you're asking, well, Manu, you know, we've seen a technological change happen quickly, historically. We've adapted. Why is that so significant? Or Manu, we've seen societies that are diverse and different. Well, why is that different? Well, I'll get there. But let me first name trend number three, because I, I feel you. I'm with you. I get you exactly where we're going. Trend number three is that for the first time since World War II, Democracy is being legitimately challenged by authoritarian models of governance. Legitimately challenged. Of course, you saw with the Soviet Union and Cold War that you saw a significant uptick in people articulating thinking about communism or the USSR is the way to go. But right now, with the rise of China and the competitive nature of our geopolitics, we're seeing a moment that is 
that where where there's a there's a significant and legitimate challenge where countries are actually opting potentially for China's model of authoritarian governance with the recent pandemic and COVID and technological progress and changes, the U.S.'s legitimacy on the world stage is being significantly challenged. So as I said a step earlier, well, you're saying, well, hey, we've been challenged before from a geopolitical standpoint. We've had diversity before. You know, we've had surges of immigration before. You look at Eastern European migration in the early 20th century. We've had technological changes before. Well, here's what's different about this moment. Here's why I think we got to contextualize the hardships and challenges of this moment. I'm hard-pressed to name another time where all three of these coalesced, all three of these coalesced at the exact same time that America experienced significant demographic changes where people look different from each other, pouring in and thinking through and exploring, trying to work together, which is a beautiful story. But then secondarily, that you're seeing technological change over the last 20 years like we've never seen before. And then third, you're seeing legitimate geopolitical challenges on the international stage. I think that if you combine the scale of these three phenomena, three disruptive trends with the ambition that is the story of America, this ideal e pluribus unum, out of many one, you combine these things together, I think it is inevitable for there to be discord, inevitable for there to be uncertainty, upheaval. And the reason why for the last six minutes we just talked about these three trends is because I think it's important, again, to contextualize America's story as we go into next week and we go into the 4th of July. It's easy to be down on America right now, whether you're conservative or liberal, because that is all we hear. But I think that context is important because that gives me the reservoir to have hope to keep moving forward. When you contextualize America amongst the three most destabilizing trends that societies have ever experienced, in my opinion, I think that historically and contemporaneously posits a legitimate understanding for why we're experiencing such challenge and hardship. And so importantly, as we look to next week, we have to remember that we have the opportunity to realize something great. Remember, I started off the show with, is America the greatest country in the history of the world? I think it's the most ambitious democratic experiment in the history of humanity. And I think it has the opportunity to be the greatest society that the world has ever seen. I think it has the opportunity for us to build the world's first successful multiracial democracy at scale that manages technological change like past societies. But the only way we realize that opportunity to become a story that generations after us will cherish and live for is because we have a choice. We have a choice. This is what I want to end this segment on before we get into an amazing conversation. And I'm excited for this dialogue with Isabel. We have a choice about whether we meet this moment with despair or whether we meet this moment with the ambition that it deserves, the hope that it deserves. We have the opportunity to look at this moment either as a crisis or as just another chapter in the story of a society, an idea that is constantly improving, constantly iterating, constantly relying on generations for it to continue to invest in its greatness. We can either think about this moment as giving in because it's too difficult and those conflict entrepreneurs, that outrage industrial complex wants us to, 
or we have the opportunity to think about how we're going to contribute to the next chapter in America's story. Four days ago, I was standing in the American capital, U.S. capital, one of the most beautiful buildings, I think, in the world. Building with history, with significant depth. That's how you know I'm a nerd. <laughs> That's how you know I'm a nerd. <laughs> because I'm telling you about how much I cherish this building. I walked through this building and I saw presidents and I saw busts of past senators and members of Congress. And I remember I was standing in the, in the center of the rotunda. It was 11 o'clock at night. Former member of Congress was kind enough to give us a tour. At 11 o'clock at night. I remember staring up. And this quote, Thomas Paine, struck me. He said, the cause of America is the cause of humankind. And he didn't mean that in some weird American exceptionalism way. He meant that in the sense, the idea of America, the ambition of the story, the progress that we've made despite all of our flaws and setbacks, that sets a marker for what societies ought to look like. That in fact, right now, we have the opportunity to contribute one step at a time towards the audacious, ambitious experiment that is America. We have to remember that a society that is so large, so different, so diverse, filled with so many different people going through technological changes like we've never seen before historically, is of course going to experience significant challenge and significant hardship. But the question is, what do we do about it? The question is whether we give into the moment or we use the moment as opportunity. So, so remember that with ambition comes great opportunity, but a loss, so a lot of hardship. And that is the story of America. And that is how I think we ought to think about it going into this 4th of July. I am so excited to get into this conversation with Isabel Brown, who I think as a conservative influencer, somebody that can really think about this perspective from the conservative side, a, a, a perspective that I'm particularly interested in. Let's get into that conversation. Isabel Brown, welcome to The Hopeful Majority. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here, be one of your first guests. We go way back, but I can't yeah. wait to see where this goes. You're one of the first five guests. And do you feel hopeful already? Oh, are, are already. You, are, always. You're, you're you always make me feel hopeful, though, I know, so the, that's nothing new. <laughs> I, I, figured, I figured the title would just add to the level of hope. Well, you know, um, every time we have a new guest on or a new conversation, Isabel, I'm, I'm tremendously grateful uh, for their time. And importantly, I know that the audience is just like, well, where does this person come from? What are their ideas? What are their thoughts? And importantly, just so you know, the last 10 minutes when we were talking in this conversation, it was about um, why I think America is the most ambitious experiment in the history of humanity. I know something that you probably find very interesting. I got to ask you, you know, building off of that, like, you have a fascinating story where you like blew up on social, you grew very quickly, you have a great following, you have an amazing audience, you have a voice, a lot of people listen to you. Like, why did you get involved? What's your story? Oh, that's the biggest open-ended question of all time. So we'll try to keep it somewhat reasonably short in terms of how I got here. I love what you just said about ambitious experiments. So remind me to circle back to that later on at the risk of co-opting Jen Psaki's favorite phrase there with circle back. Good times. Uh, my name is Isabel Brown and I am an independent content creator. I'm a live streamer. So we do something a bit like this podcast every single day on my long form social media platforms. That's a little bit more casual, more interactive, where we go back and forth with the live chat uh, and just talk about the biggest 
uh, cultural and political topics of the day from a Gen Z perspective. I'm an author. I do quite a bit of public speaking. I wear a ton of different hats. But if you had asked me what I would be doing when I was 25, almost 26 years old this month, uh, what my life would look like, what my job would be, whether or not I would even be on social media, I would have never had an answer for you. And in fact, had no desire or personal ambition or goal to work in content creation or in politics really remotely at all. Uh, my dream was to become a surgeon and I loved science. You wanted to be a surgeon? I did. Yeah. I, I wanted to be a pre, I was a pre-med student. Nice. You <laughs> will bond over pre-med and the horrors of organic chemistry, I'm sure. Um, but I pursued my degree in biomedical sciences during college at Colorado State University. I grew up in the mountains of Colorado, loved science in every way, shape or form, everything from the science ecology outdoor adventure camp that I went to every summer in the mountains, climbing big peaks and learning about snow science and animal populations, all the way down to every cell in the human body, uh, and really just was obsessed with science's encouragement of the pursuit of objective truth. And I fell in love with that all through elementary school, through summer camp, through my higher education in high school, uh, and knew that I wanted to do something with a career that would help people, but also allow me to continue working into that pursuit of objective truth. And science and medicine really seemed to be the right fit for that. So ended up pursuing my degree in BMS and found myself in sort of a weird chapter of American history. I'm sure we'll look back on it with very strange memories, decades and centuries down the line, uh, with the rise of Antifa on college campuses, with the rise of complete ideological inaccuracies and inconsistencies in higher education, and really just intolerance towards different perspectives and opening your worldview and challenging your, your own point of view and where you were coming from with your values to expose yourself to new ways of thinking, which amazingly was what I was promised college was supposed to be about through every step of my childhood in my college prep high school, by my parents and the people that I looked up to in my life, that I would be very vigorously academically, values-based, and intellectually challenged on my college campus and instead found that I was really only getting one perspective all of the time. Amazingly, even in my classes like biomedical sciences and physiology and anatomy and organic chemistry, which I had to take three times because it's just horrible. So That's I'm tough. sure, <laughs> I'm sure others can relate to that. I wasn't really doing that pursuit of objective truth that I thought that I was going to be doing, that I was paying my tuition dollars for. And I wasn't feeling adequately prepared to be a competent surgeon someday, to be a good doctor, to stand up for truth in a very confusing world. Instead, I was spending a lot more time arguing with my professors about their partisan political opinions or why they believed that the Constitution was outdated and that the First Amendment should outlaw hate speech, but they couldn't define what that was for me. And this, or, was, and this was happening in, in just in classes and sort of as your encounter? It was, yeah, regularly. And this is this is why I love this question because I have no idea how the person's going to answer it and then we just go go down different different sort of paths. <laughs> it's like it's like choose your own adventure and as many of the new guests on here and as many of the new audience members know some of the questions that I find really fascinating are about some of these philosophical perspectives and I just want to get your understanding of like you said objective truth, right? Yeah. And talk to folks across the political spectrum and everyone's everyone's talk something about how truth is under attack. How do you think about truth? And mm -hmm. what do you think is unique about this moment where it feels like 
we don't share these objective truths. Why is mm. that? Oh, wow, man. We're just going right into it right from the beginning. I mean, I think ultimately I like to think of truth from a scientific perspective, right? When we think about what we know to be reality versus what we know to have been proven false over the years, like a flat earth theory, right? We know that that is not reality and we know that the earth, our planet, is a sphere that is rotating around the sun in outer space. We can tell you what that rotation looks like because we've asked the big questions. We've asked the question, is the world flat? We have a hypothesis. Sure, it is. Then we go do all the research and we figure it out and we prove that that hypothesis is wrong. And that scientific method that we've all learned starting in first grade or even younger with asking a big question, going and getting all of the information and then coming to the most proven logical conclusion possible, knowing that, of course, there's room for development in that later on down the line. That to me is how you know something is real or it isn't real. And that's been backed up through my undergrad experience and then my graduate school experience in the policy side of science as well. Uh, and where I was feeling really frustrated and stuck in my classes where I was supposed to be asking those big fundamental questions about the universe or how the human body worked or what gender was formed by and if male and female bodies had differences or brains had differences, which they do. Uh, we were learning all of these things as objective fact. Like this is something that we've known scientifically to be true for thousands of years. And then months down the line in the same class would be told by our professors. But, you know, these days eh, we just don't really pay attention to that. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, we would spend literally six months in my physiology classes learning about every single tiny thing that has to happen in the womb when a baby is developing. When that child can feel pain, that babies have their own sentient thoughts in the womb, uh, that from the moment of conception, that's a unique code of DNA that has never existed before and will never exist again. And then I was told a few months later, learning about this person, like looking at ultrasounds, looking at 3D videos of a child moving around in the womb, that it's not really a person, it's just a clump of cells. And that as a doctor, I would probably be participating in the abortion industry, whether I liked it or not, and remove any sort of religious bias or, or political value whatsoever there. Scientifically, that didn't make sense to me. Similarly, we would learn about chromosomal uh, indications of gender and that there are such things as differences structurally in the skeletal system or in muscle mass and density, or even how your brain is structured. That in a neuroanatomy course, I would hold in my two hands a male brain and a female brain in my hands, which is so cool. By the way. I'm <laughs> I was such about a nerd. To, say, yeah. to you, that sounds cool. <laughs> to me, I don't know. Well, it let, feels let me, weird. Me, it's squishier than you think. But let I would me, look at these things uh -huh. and, and they were different, right? I could see and point out that these things were different only to be told that, you know, gender doesn't really exist and it's kind of just a feeling and it's not an objective reality. And so I find it fascinating that we've arrived in this time that even science, which is ultimately about the pursuit of truth. And of course, we've evolved our beliefs and our opinions on things over the years. Our theories have updated and evolved and changed uh, over the last several millennia of human existence. But we've come to this conclusion that my truth is different from your truth. And I think we're inserting that as a replacement for our values, not wanting to come up against something that makes us feel uncomfortable. When academia is by nature supposed to make us feel uncomfortable, we're challenging our comfort zones. We're challenging our own perspectives and beliefs. Uh, so to wrap up really my, my story of how I got into this, I was feeling so stuck and frustrated in that environment where I was supposed to be regularly butting up against 
reality and how I was supposed to reconcile with that, even if my values were different from reality, and instead was really just being spoon fed one political narrative and ideal ideology every single day. And uh, found myself really thinking, I am literally the only person that thinks the way I do as a generally conservative, although not all the time, uh, Christian person on my big college campus in Fort Collins, Colorado. That's a pretty agricultural country school, you would think, but in reality had become something so different by the time I arrived there. Uh, And I knew statistically in a sea of 33,000 students that probably wasn't true. I just wasn't seeing any courage from other people in being willing to challenge the narrative. So I decided to do something about it and ran for student government I started a conservative political club on my campus, but really didn't spend all that much time talking about what, what policy. What year were you in school when you ran for student government? Uh, I ran as a sophomore the or first just time, so I just, 2017. And and let me just drill down on this just further. I, I know we waded into the philosophical pool and now we're stepping back out. Um, but let me ask you this, like why you mentioned courage and you mentioned this idea that, you know, suddenly you felt like you were the only voice in the room and you had to do something about it. Um but that's a pretty difficult step to take, right? Like it's it's kind of vulnerable, yeah. especially as a pre-med or, you know, somebody that wants to be a surgeon. I mean, that's a much, at, at least for, from my perspective, that honestly feels like a much simpler life than the life that you've embarked on. I mean, my parents, they're Indian. In India, you have like three job <laughs> prospects. You can be a doctor, engineer, and if you really get crazy, a lawyer. And I was yeah. like, podcasting and nonprofits. Um, and so like, why that step? Because that's a, that's a, that's a big step. I mean, honestly, I don't think it originally was this, I'm going to change the entire trajectory of my life step. Um, At the time, I just felt the need to facilitate conversation and just open people's minds and perspectives. I felt frustrated that my university was not doing the job that it promised to do, which was challenge your perspectives and create ideological diversity and just expose you to new ways of thinking. And I was tired of paying tuition to a university that wasn't doing that and decided if my professors and my administration aren't doing that, I can do that. I can facilitate conversations in student government or by starting a club and inviting speakers who break the mainstream narrative uh, here on campus and just have an interesting conversation. I've always been someone who sought out friends and relationships and teachers and classes that didn't align with my own personal worldview because I find it fascinating just to get to know people and different cultures and ways of life. And I was really feeling siloed in, A, as the outsider, but B, knowing that the people who did disagree with me were lacking the opportunity to challenge their own worldview and their own perspective, which is what college was supposed to be all about. So obviously that evolved into a very different trajectory and very different career path than the very prescribed, you know, you're going to school for eight years and then you'll do your residency and then you'll work in a hospital for the rest of your life. Well, but what's, what's fascinating about, about your story is it starts from this feeling of like feeling cornered, feeling alienated, feeling like you believe something that everybody else uh, seems to be clearly off on. And that feeling of loneliness, alienation, this idea that, I have an idea that everybody else is like, what's going on? I think that's a feeling that anybody across the political spectrum can relate to. And in fact, it's something that when we built this notion of the hopeful majority, it's something I found, which is that most people, when they get pushed into a corner, if they have a, a little bit of courage, will fight back. And I've noticed in our politics that we are at this moment where, and you have much more experience than I do, but it seems like we're at this moment where we're pushing, where people, everybody I've talked to, 
to an extent feels pushed into some corner and they feel yeah. like they got to push back. How do you feel like we can build a culture? Because, I mean, your goal was, like, I want to facilitate conversations. How do you think we can go about actually creating a culture where people don't feel pushed into mm -hmm. a corner because of their ideas, create some degree of openness so that you have a safety valve. I think of it like a pressure cooker. You know, you lift a little bit of a lid off so that some of that steam can go out. Otherwise, it explodes. Mm -hmm. um, how do you create that culture? Uh, importantly, do you think that culture should be created? Because it, it needs to be created. To I think created. you're right. We are in a pressure cooker and we're about to explode. And I think we've seen that more in the last two, three years than ever before in modern history. We are uh, in a corner and we're on a cliff as a society and we're trying to figure out where we go from here and how we can live together and how we can create policy that helps everybody. Uh, and even just how we can sit in the same room as someone who thinks differently than us or speaks differently than us. And I think we really are, for lack of a better term, at this turning point in American culture, almost like a breaking point in American culture, where unless we figure out how to facilitate those conversations, I don't know where we go from here. And that's the really intense answer to that question. But I think it really starts with just talking to people and finding the humanity in one another. It goes back to my experience as a campus activist on my campus uh, when I invited people who are hardly... I think extremely controversial people like Dennis Prager who talk about Judeo-Christian values as a whole. And that's pretty much it. He's an older guy. He's kind of like my work grandpa at this point and has been very supportive to me. But when I invited him to my college campus, for example, things were so crazy uh, that I was getting death threats and people threatening to rape me. My address got doxxed online. Uh, the campus police department had to come with me to class several times because they were worried for my safety. Uh, many, many, many threats of violence and death threats. The Colorado National Guard actually had to come to my campus and set up concrete barriers so that people wouldn't drive cars through crowds of protesters. And snipers were on top of our computer science building because I invited a speaker to come to campus to talk about the importance of free speech and to invite people who disagreed with him to skip to the front of the line for Q&A and just talk about literally anything that they wanted to talk about. There was no specific subject. There was no MO. There was no trying to indoctrinate a whole crowd of people, but literally just to facilitate an interesting conversation. And for well, all I want the people- you, I want you to clear something up right now because I know somebody that's disagreeing with you says, well, you must be there to just be a provocateur. Yeah. You're just inviting people just to stir- was that the case? No, of course not. And I actually have adopted this now as a speaker on college campuses myself. I just love conversation. I love getting to know people. I love challenging my own perspectives. So it's fascinating for me when I get to hear where somebody is coming from. I think that's a common misconception that people think. And some people do abuse that just to get the own the libs content on Twitter or whatever. I get it. But uh, most people I have found that I work with really are seeking genuine dialogue. But watching that as a campus activist and seeing, you know, there's a few hundred people losing their minds outside that they've been confronted with somebody who has a different worldview than them. But there was 1,200 people inside from all walks of life, some wearing Antifa memorabilia on their backpacks or the stickers on their water bottle, who came and asked questions and had an interesting conversation. And I had countless professors come find me quietly on campus that night or the next day and whisper, thank you for doing that. That was one of the most fascinating nights I've had on this campus in a long time. And we don't do that anymore as a university. And so I've decided to adopt that after graduation uh, and adopt activism in general and just being 
willing to stand up and advocate for freedom and liberty and objective truth in society, which I don't find to be all that controversial. A lot of people do find that to be controversial today, but I wanted to take that with me after college graduation in a more digital sense as a content creator. So have worn a lot of hats since then, but really what I've done since I graduated from college and grad school at Georgetown uh, in 2020 was get up and try to tell people the truth every day in any way that I can, whether that's a 15 second TikTok video or a two hour live stream or speaking on college campuses or writing some books, uh, some new exciting announcements coming on that front later. But uh, I really just think facilitating that dialogue and having those conversations is where that culture can start to be built. Because I found along the way, most of the people who walked out of my life when I decided to be bold and stand up and be courageous about the things I believed in, but more importantly, just facilitate a space for dialogue, period, in a society that's very antithetical to dialogue. Most of the people that walked away didn't do so on the basis of disagreeing with me. In fact, I made some of my best friends on my college campus who had absolutely nothing in common with me whatsoever politically. We would have voted on every single policy issue as exact polar opposites. Uh, one of my best friends, for example, was a disabled lesbian democratic socialist. We had nothing in common, but we became the best of friends through student government and through our activism on campus. Uh, and I later befriended so many people that I never would have had the chance to meet if I wasn't somewhat of a countercultural voice and figure on my campus in saying that we should be exposed to different perspectives. So, so. I, you'll, I, I have so many different questions. And, and if, if it seems like I'm going to interrupt you, it's because no, I know go for it. That's what it's all about. I know, I know where people are going with this. And that's the instinct that I've got sort of on our politics is I have an idea of what somebody's thinking right now. But I want to pause on that for a second. I want to ask you this and going back to your story about bringing Dennis Prager. So there's 100 people outside protesting while there's 1,200 people inside. My entire story began with Miley Yiannopoulos coming to UC Berkeley mm -hmm. when I was a freshman. And I, I had nothing to do with it. I was just a, a, a teeny random dude walking around and we saw some of the largest protests in Berkeley's history since the 60s. Do you think those 100 people are representative of everybody on campus? Do you think that they are just a minority of really loud voices that are controlling the microphone. Hmm. Do you? What's your assessment and diagnosis of those 100 people and how representative they are of a broader yeah. population? I think the sad reality is that you said it really well. They are controlling the microphone and therefore controlling the narrative, even though they are a more vocal minority. I genuinely have come to believe in the last several years of working in politics, working in culture. I've, I've definitely spent the last year or so branding beyond culture because I think most of the issues we're experiencing or beyond politics, rather. I think most of the issues we're experiencing as a country right now are not so much about partisan right versus left or Republican versus Democrat. Those do exist. But I think the vast majority of the issues we're experiencing are really just about the people in charge versus everybody else. And so have spent a lot more time talking about the cultural issues that impact us day to day as a creator, like dating and the environment and everything in between uh, than what's happening in Congress as of late. But I think what I've really come to discover in the last few years, working in the White House, working in the U.S. Senate, working in social media, speaking on college campuses. Where have you not worked? Uh, everywhere. I know I'm I'm a girl who wears many hats. We've established this. Um, really, it is a small group of people that controls 
the the narrative, the voice, the trajectory of our country. And if you're not willing to go on offense and be a part of that conversation and at least grab a microphone yourself and share the same PA system, you have to be comfortable sitting in the backseat and letting other people take the driver the driver's course of where we're going as a country. I am not one of those people that's comfortable letting somebody else dictate the trajectory of our country without at least a fair conversation about it. So that's why I decided to get involved. But you see it on college campuses with, you know, the hundred protesters outside that makes national news, but you don't see the 1200 people inside having an interesting, stimulating, thought provoking conversation because that's not going to drive ratings, right? You see that on social media with the people who have millions upon millions of followers owning each other and shutting each other down and trying to get that one viral clip on Twitter or on TikTok instead of a calm, rational conversation with people who you disagree with because that drives algorithms. And I think we just live in this manufactured outrage society in 2023 where the people who can provoke the strongest emotional, visceral reaction out of you get to determine the conversation. But what I love about Generation Z is that's become the norm so much that we are rebelling against that, like any young generation does. We rebel against the people who are the mainstream. Uh, that used to look like getting a sleeve full of tattoos and a nose ring yeah. and trying to tell your parents, you don't know what you're talking about. You were never young. Today, to be countercultural means to be rational, means to be intellectually curious, means to seek out dialogue and conversation in these monolithic environments that we're constantly well, surrounded by, like algorithms in our classrooms and everywhere in between. Isabel Brown, welcome to The Hopeful Majority. You've uh, articulated the reason for this podcast and for this show, which is that I think, as you've seen across the country, and I travel and have visited campuses all over the place, you find that there's the majority of people just want to listen, want to get along, want to solve issues. Yes, there's real disagreements. There's real value differences. The question is, how do you litigate those differences, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you this. Imagine I'm somebody on the right, and you and I are having a conversation. I say, Okay, is about you're inviting AOC next week to campus. You're giving a platform to somebody unnecessarily. Um, let, there's no need to have this conversation because that person is terrible. They have no nothing of truth to add to this conversation. They're dumb. Forget it. Forget it. What's the point of this conversation? How do you respond? And I ask the same question to people on the left. Well, you know, how do you respond to this critique that this conversation? Of, of a mere dialogue is platforming somebody. Because mm -hmm. that seems to be an immediate answer or retort to whatever it is that you're talking about. Yeah, similarly, I get that criticism a lot from people, my parents or grandparents' age, when I make content about people who do have a nefarious agenda, I believe, and they say, uh, just ignore it, don't give it a platform, it'll just go away. Like, there's no way that that'll impact culture. And then we wake up 20 years from now and say, how did that become mainstream? It's because you ignored it and it got a platform all on its own. Um, as a side note, I would love to have lunch with AOC. I've said this for years. I just think it would be a fascinating conversation. So on the off chance that you hear this, AOC would love to buy you lunch next time I'm in Washington, D.C., I love that you threw in the word dumb because that is more often than not the criticism that people like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would get from people on the right. You might disagree with her policies. I vehemently do. I don't really support anything that she's doing with a very few exceptions. Uh, you might disagree with her style and how she gets things done, but you cannot remotely try to present a logistical argument to me 
that that person is dumb or stupid or unaware of what they're doing. That's usually the insult that's just thrown at young people in general within right of center conversations, uh, which I do my very best to try to debunk just because something is different doesn't mean that it is dumb. But you can't build a media empire and become one of the youngest people elected to Congress and become one of the most effective people in Congress by being dumb. Uh, and I think we have a lot to learn from each other, whether or not it's about policy or messaging or anything in between, you can have that conversation all day long. But strictly from a messaging to youth perspective, I would be fascinated to sit down and talk with somebody like AOC, like Maxwell Frost, who lives here in Florida, where I live now. Uh, they have understood and sort of cracked a secret code in reaching out to youth in America and empowering youth in a way that the right just hasn't. So I would argue that's a pretty great opportunity. Let, for let that me just let me just give you some credit on something. You made a stronger case from AOC than I've heard people on the left make. And now I don't want people to clip that. What I want people to recognize, and this is why when you introduced yourself, you said you're an independent content creator. No matter what you think about Isabel or her ideas or her beliefs, she just made an argument for something that you, somebody that disagrees with her, might probably be thinking about. And that is exactly the temperament we need and we need to incentivize. So let me ask you this. It seems like all the incentive structures, Isabel, right now in society disincentivize what you just did. Because it seems like if you wanted to have the greatest reach, if you wanted to be like one of our mutual friends, Charlie, right? You wanted to get out there and you wanted to, uh, and I'm not making a specific critique about him or anybody else. It's just the fact yeah. is that if you want to play the algorithm, it's very easy to just play one side. Why are you not succumbing to those incentives? And how do you flip those incentives? Oh, I don't know if it's possible to flip them, to be honest. I think algorithms and social media companies are so deeply ingrained in what they do. And that's how they continue keeping your eyes glued to the screen, right? When you feed people more and more content like what they're already watching, that's how you get them to stay on the platform, which is how you survive as a company. So I'm not sure that they can be changed in terms of the incentive programs. I have hope that our generation would be the ones to change them if anybody would. Um, but you're right. It's very easy to speak to an echo chamber. It's really easy to speak to an echo chamber. And I find it fascinating. I don't get a lot of love on the right for saying this, but we like to say we're fighting a culture war. And I actually do really believe that. I think we are at this tipping point, breaking point, uncertain future of what Western culture and civilization is going to look like as our generation comes into adulthood and we continue having more generations come after us, where we do feel confused. Everything feels upside down. There is no objective answer to anything anymore. Nobody can give you a straight answer on where we are going as a society. Uh, because we can't even agree on where we are today. So I do believe that we are fighting a culture war. But at the same time, most of the people who will tell you that won't go where culture is to the people that they disagree with to try to change people's minds and have an interesting conversation and see where the other side is coming from. It's why so many people spend hours and hours and hours a day on Twitter tweeting out one word statements that are going to get, you know, 5 million retweets and get you a bunch of followers and have a really super viral own the libs clip, which I just absolutely cannot stand. Uh, but how can you remotely report that you want to change culture and win a culture war if you're not willing to go where culture is? And I've made a, a really distinct just, just one decision. second. I got I yeah. to pin, pin that really quickly. I, I don't want to interrupt your flow of thought, but what's fascinating about what you just said is 
Because somebody might say, well, if you actually think, Isabel, that we're in a culture where why are you here talking about listening to people? But you've made a case, an articulation that bridge building, listening to people that are different than you is actually a way to win the argument. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that more? Because oftentimes when people hear this, they think, well, you're just giving up, right? You're just, you're just throwing your hands up. You're compromising, yeah, everything, yeah. But you're, you're articulating this as a theory of change for your side. Why is that? I see it. I see it every single day. I mean, I don't have to invent a new way of changing people's minds when the solution is right in front of me every day. I had to make a really clear decision as a creator not to buy into the manufactured outrage, the five second clip that's going to make you really angry, to wait to comment on things like school shootings or the latest viral trend that everybody jumps to make a statement about five seconds in because you just don't know the whole story right in that exact moment. And that it's less important to have a comment about something than it is to learn something on social media. So it has taken me much, much longer as a creator compared to so many other people that I work with to build an audience, to get picked up in an algorithm. The last few months have been really insane in a positive way. So I'm happy about that. But um, I, I had to make a decision. It is more important for me to have my integrity and to have the opportunity to learn and facilitate interesting conversations than be owned by a big media company. So have somebody else pay to make all of it happen, but tell me what to say or to buy into this manufactured outrage, uh, five second clip and, and very viral type of content creation. The reason I say that it works is because I see every day with my generation, nothing but hope in facilitating dialogue to find common ground. And I think we look at common ground as the enemy or something to be avoided in modern politics because we've convinced ourselves that anybody who thinks differently than us on any issue, by the way, they could agree on 80% of things, but this one thing that we disagree on, you are demonic or you're evil or you are literally Hitler. The number of times I've been called Hitler youth captain or Hitler Barbie, ridiculous, right? But we we buy into this hyperbolic manufactured outrage language that completely removes the humanity from anybody who might be different from us. Even if we agree on 80% of what's going on in the world or 90% of what's going on in the world, or even don't know how we feel about a certain issue. And I think we feel so much pressure as creators to have your 100% opinion on something from day one, which is so antithetical to what the human experience is supposed to be. You're supposed to challenge your own perspectives, just like I did on my college campus. Uh, you're supposed to be able to change your mind on something, admit when you don't know something. And the only way to learn and grow is to facilitate that dialogue. Um, I'll tell you what, the issue that I see my generation really embracing curiosity on more than anything else in the last few months has been the pro-life and pro-abortion conversation that we see in America today in the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned. We're in this let, let big... Me, let me really quickly, because this is a really fast... I want to I drill down on this abortion question because I think you're you're demonstrating to people that something is possible. Before we shift to this, this specific portion, because I think I want to spend some time on that. Uh, I just want to I want to articulate something to people that are listening right now. There's a purposeful reason why I have not challenged what Isabel believes, but we are agreeing on how we believe things. We're agreeing on the process. And this distinction between process and what, mm -hmm. of course, there's certain things that you and I might disagree on. Of course, there's there's no ch I hope we disagree on something. That's what makes us interesting humans. But what I do agree with Isabel on is the process of thinking. 
which is we have to be open-minded, we have to listen to each other. And I just wanna articulate that that's what I want this conversation to be drifting towards because that I think is an a priority issue. If you break the table that we're supposed to have a conversation on, it doesn't matter what the conversation is gonna be about, the table's broken. Yep. You were going to abortion, take us there. Oh yeah, we're just gonna dive right in. Here we go, I can't help myself. So I will say upfront, I am unapologetically pro-life. I've come to this decision, not just through my religious and political foundation of belief, but also as a scientist, what I have learned about human development uh, and the whole nine. So that's where I'm coming from. You might not share that belief if you are listening to this and that's totally okay. In fact, that's great because it gives us an opportunity to have a real conversation about it. Um, I've been touring the country this spring on college campuses with a friend of mine, Kristen, and her organization, Students for Life of America, talking about uh, why we can't have these conversations and inviting dialogue and encouraging people who do support abortion to skip the line and ask us questions and just have an interesting conversation. So I'm coming off of a few months of really, really in-depth conversation about this particular issue. But I'll tell you what, Manu, I see more hope on common ground and seeing where people are coming from, even if we walk away from a singular conversation on different pages of the what, of what we believe on the issue of abortion more than any other topic in American politics right now, wow. which is so ironic because that's really the most divisive topic in American politics right now. And I think where people's emotions get stirred up so frequently because it's a really difficult conversation. Tell to me have. more. This is fascinating. You know, it's hard because when you're talking about abortion, you're talking about women who probably have had abortion before an abortion in their life. They know somebody who's had an abortion. Uh, they themselves have experienced a miscarriage or an ectopic pregnancy and are confused about what abortion bans might mean for what other women experiencing that might have to go through in the future. States like California and Colorado, where I grew up, are embracing a really, really far side on that side. And then states like Florida and North Dakota and other states in America are going so far to the other direction. So we're just really confused as a country where we go forward from here. And I think there's a lot of misinformation coming everywhere because nobody knows what territory we are in on this issue. But that also presents the most opportunity for people to ask questions, to listen, and to have dialogue. So when I've been on these college campuses in the last few months talking about why I'm pro-life, why I think you should be too, but if, even if you disagree with me, that's okay. If you have a question, I would love to talk to you about it. Uh, I see the emotion in the eyes of these students that I'm talking to every day because they want so deeply to create a better world for the next generation. And they want so deeply to actually care for and uplift and empower women who are in these crisis situations and have nowhere else to turn, who might have experienced abuse, who might be feeling pressured one way or another by their boyfriend or their husband or their family member or whatever. Uh, and everybody just wants to care. They feel this sense of wanting to give back to society, but they have no idea where to go from there. There's no trajectory. There's no clear path other than holding a poster and standing at the Women's March in Washington, D.C. every once in a while. And they want to do more. And where I'm finding the greatest opportunity to take this to other subjects in these conversations is that I've come to discover the facts don't care about your feelings model was extremely effective for millennials. And millennials as a generation really kind of did need to be beat over the head with a subject and feel that jarring sense of exposure to something different from themselves to get them thinking. While Gen Z, and perhaps it's because of our education system and how we were raised with uh, SEL classes, social and emotional learning classes, perhaps it's the entertainment we watch. I don't know what contributed to this, but we really are a feelings generation. And many people from the pro-life 
uh, advocacy community that I work with or the conservative right of center political perspective that I live in every day. They look at feelings as the enemy. They are these evil things manipulated by the left because your feelings have torn away from facts and we've treated them like they cannot be mutually exclusive. When in reality, one of the most effective ways to change someone's mind is to tap into their feelings and that deep-seated emotion knowing humanity deserves better than whatever we're living through right now because we all feel that hurt and we all feel that confusion and the desire to help people and want them to have a better life. So I like to ask people, you know, you really tell me you care about women in these crisis situations. From my perspective, when you're given the option of a pro-life pregnancy center, which by the way, there's 3,000 of those compared to about 600 abortion facilities in America. And these pregnancy centers are providing free prenatal care and free diaper drives and free childcare and helping you raise money to pay your mortgage and your rent and making sure that you're taking care of the whole process scot-free. You don't have to pay a dime or you go pay money to somebody who tells you really your only your only option is to have an abortion. That doesn't really seem like a choice. That's really frustrating. Like, how should we be putting women through that level of emotional trauma when it seems like there's all these resources over here that nobody knows about and we can continue fueling more into, especially for women that do want to have a family, uh, but just don't know if this is the right time or don't know if they can make that happen. People's light bulbs go off in their brain because they've never heard of that before, but they know that they want to help women and they realize something is kind of wrong with this model. And that's my perspective. Obviously, you might disagree with but, that. But, but the reason why I think that perspective is interesting is because you've highlighted something that we've seen as effective in conversations one-on-one, -on -one, which is that you connected with people's emotions, mm -hmm. right? Again, forgetting for a second, if you're just joining, Isabel's talking currently about the value of curiosity in conversations about abortion, how she's seeing a lot of actual opportunities for common ground and what she's just identified and what you're identifying is that it seems like when you connect on the level of human feeling, feelings that we all have, mm -hmm. you can actually get somewhere that that mom that's struggling and you know that you want to care for her and the person on the other side of the issue also knows that they need to care for her. I didn't I didn't want to sort of interrupt that flow of thought, but I just have to highlight the fact that most people in the hopeful majority, all of us that are exhausted about the the moment of our politics, there are tips and things we can be doing in our individual one-on-one -on -one conversations that yeah. break ground that are interesting and and moving the ball forward. I want to shift a little bit. I, I wish we could keep talking about abortion. And by the way, if you're listening, you want to have a deeper conversation with us about abortion, support the show so that we can make it three hours instead of one. <laughs> um, greatest misunderstandings, misperceptions about you. If you were talking oh. to your critics, what do you think people that disagree with you have wrong about you? A lot. Um, I will just wrap up and say, not just on the issue of abortion, sure, but generally sure. Go speaking, for it. Go for emo it. Feel emotion free is a powerful thing, right? There's a reason that we have emotion baked into our very soul, right? It tells you when you're doing something right, when you should be elated and excited. It tells you when something is really wrong, when you're angry or sad. Uh, and when we're all feeling that sense of hopelessness right now in society, which is universal, by the way, we are dealing with the biggest generational mental health crisis the world has ever seen in terms of anxiety and depression and thoughts of suicide. The CDC actually informed us that in 2021, one in three teenage girls seriously contemplated taking her own life. So it's obvious to me that we are not doing the right thing in society, whether you want to attribute that to political policies, our cultural way of life, or just the extreme polarization that we're living through today. I don't know what's the direct cause of that, but they certainly are all correlational. And I think it's time for us to abandon the facts don't care about your feelings model for this new generation 
that's really desperate to feel something positive and feel something they can feel hopeful about uh, because those emotions are powerful for a reason. They're powerful for a good, a good reason. So I'm encouraging other people to tap into that. Not that that statement isn't incredibly catchy and that no, it wasn't effective ju- in the past. Just, just for people that don't know where that statement comes from, facts don't care about your feelings is uh, a statement popularized by one of the most prominent conservative commentators who I actually respect a lot, Ben Shapiro. Yep. And uh, one of the things that Ben has talked a lot about is the need to prioritize facts. But I think what Isabel's getting at and what you're specifically articulating here is that to create ground, to break ground, this is psychology. People don't change their minds because they're presented by different facts, right? Mm -hmm. People change their minds because you connect on an emotional level, which is then buttressed and supplemented by facts. I really want you to answer this question of what people that disagree with you have wrong about you. (laughs) A lot. I'll tell you that. And it's nothing new. Pick like three. I've come up against this throughout my entire trajectory, starting as a college student who just raised her hand in class and said, you know, I disagree with that all the way through deciding to do this for a career. Um, I think the biggest and most obvious umbrella is that I hate people somehow or that I want people to experience violence or pain or like be wiped off the face of the earth or something because I believe in conservative principles or freedom of speech or that I'm pro-life or there's a million reasons why people seem to have this opinion of me. And that manifests in a million different labels and name calling from transphobic and homophobic to white supremacist to anti-woman, which I'm usually told by men, which is incredibly bizarre uh, and a a million other things. Right. That's a mind trip. It is a mind trip, although now you're not really supposed to assume, I guess. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Uh, But really, I think people have created this false identity of who I am based on like 10 second clips that they see on TikTok. And they don't even rarely take the time to go look at my full live stream, for example, where I explain things and we have rational conversation. We go back and forth in the live chat. I'm a really friendly, open-minded person and people have built this caricature of me on the internet that's like a scream in your face, always angry, always divisive, trying to destroy people level of a person that that I could never affiliate with. I think it's just easier for people to do that often than try to expand their own viewpoint, especially because that's so countercultural, right? Like what I'm doing as a content creator Sure, makes videos about who's running for president or what the biggest issue of the day is or dating or whatever. But more than that, what I'm doing as a content creator at the why, like at the most basic level, is just to start interesting conversations that our society is not facilitating. And when you look at the different pillars of culture in America today, from entertainment to education to our political system to the church, literally everything, there is no room for ideological diversity in the America that we live in today. None. Not through our algorithms, not through the TV shows that we watch, not through the uniparty that I really believe is running Washington, D.C., which is incredibly frustrating as somebody who values independent political thought. Uh, And we've spent a lot of time talking about that, I'm sure, and you will with your other guests as well. But what I'm doing is so countercultural in inviting dialogue in inviting people on my stream who I disagree with about a million different things, in challenging something that a mainstream conservative podcast host or TV host said and saying, you know, that's wrong. I'm doing that tomorrow about the raise the voting age to 25 thing on my live stream because I'm really frustrated by that. Reminding people it's okay to be an individual, to change your mind on something, 
to talk to people who you might disagree with. That's such a foreign feeling and foreign concept to so many people today when every other aspect of their life and culture is so rigid that I think it's easier to create this caricature of who I am instead of finding the humanity in me. But that's true of everybody today. So I try not to take it hugely personal, but people seem to think I'm really angry. (laughs) Actually, I I would do this at the end, but but it fits in right now. If uh, somebody's listening and they do disagree with you and they want to challenge you further and they want to take you up on this notion of dialogue, where can they find you? Yes, uh, I am extremely responsive in my Instagram DMs. I try to answer as many as I can every day. And every day at 3 p.m. Eastern, I go live on all of my long form video platforms, YouTube, Rumble, Getter, Facebook and locals. And you can put anything in the live chat. We welcome conversation and disagreement. By the way, to everybody listening, this is exactly what folks in this hopeful majority want. And the reason, again, why the idea of uplifting people that are just listening, want curiosity, want open-mindedness is because actually I think, Isabel, that's how we flip the dynamics. I think all of, I think the way we flip the incentives is you have to create a market dynamic change. And I think the way you create a market dynamic change is right now the loudest voices dictate what you see and hear. I think recently I read a stat that said that almost 80% of generated content on Twitter is produced by 20% of users. Sounds fair. Yeah. I mean, so I want to end on a, a two sort of last questions. One is uh, the last question is the question I ask everybody from political leaders to independent commentators like you to random friends that I've got that I want to bring on the show because they're just interesting to talk to. But before we get there, I got to get your opinion on uh, 2024. Uh, really quickly, what's going to happen? You're you're smart. You're intelligent. You yeah. think about this a lot. Educate me. You know, 2024 is an anomaly to me, and I have strategically avoided (laughs) defining candidates or who I want to see run for a lot of reasons, because A, it's really far away, and a lot of the people running are pretty old. So like literally anything could happen in the next few months to a year that could change the entire trajectory of the conversation. People love to jump on their preferred candidate or whatever. I think it's really premature to do that. So I'll kind of stray away from that. But I will say, I don't know if we've seen the legitimate lineup of candidates yet. Literally anything could happen with either the president, who seems to be the forerunner for the Democrat Party, uh, with whoever the forerunner might be for the Republican Party. Not every candidate has announced yet. I think we're in for a lot more shakeups and surprises, but I'm incredibly disappointed that the DNC has decided not to hold any primary debates. I think that the next generation of voters and every voter, for that matter, deserves to hear a legitimate conversation from whoever they want their candidate to be rather than shying away from those challenges or conversations. And I'm very enlightened and encouraged to see so many liberals and leftists speak out about their frustration with the primary debates being canceled. Um, I, I don't think we've quite seen who our candidates are going and, to be. And on that's that's side. that's honest analysis. You know that there's a lot there's a lot to be told. There's a lot to happen. You recently moved to Florida. You never know what Isabel's up to these days. You know there's a, there's some special people out in Florida on your side of the aisle that are making a lot of rumblings. And so hey, we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll see. see. What, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Um, I know I said I would just ask two last questions, but there's one other thing I want to ask you, which is, and you've kind of touched on this a little bit throughout the conversation. But if there's one thing that you would like people on your side of the political conversation to maybe change or alter or Mm -hmm. a piece of critique you have for people that might ideologically agree with you, what would that be? How we message our ideas needs to change and it needs to evolve. 
what worked for a marketing strategy in 2016, for example, was almost a decade ago, and it's not going to work today for this next generation of voters. Gen Z, I mean, think about it. When the idea of make America great again was first coined, that was when President Trump announced he was running for office for the first time. That was what, 2015? By the time the next president will be inaugurated, it will be 2025. So it will have been a decade of MAGA. Oh my God, I feel old. I do too. I feel really old. I feel incredibly old. But this next generation is so much more skeptical Naturally, there are 52% of Generation Z that is registering as independent as we start to get old enough to register to vote. So we're looking for someone to support, but we're not going to blindly support just anyone. And like the culture war, if you want to change people's minds or reach them where they are, you have to be willing to go where they are. And that includes making TikTok videos or hosting live streams uh, and really going out of your way to break free of the traditional political and or corporate media structure that has gotten people elected in the past. The left seems to really be adapting to this. The Biden administration announced that they're hiring a slew of an army of digital influencers and TikTokers, giving them their own press briefings and access to the White House, which is genius. And I wish that somebody else would have come up with that. Uh, but we kind of seem to be stuck in this Facebook ads Twitter video, let's type things on Twitter in all caps, and that will get somebody elected, uh, manufactured outrage level of messaging and marketing from the right. Uh, and I'm really hopeful to see more independent creators like myself take it upon ourselves to go where culture is. But if the party and the entity that makes all of that happen is unwilling to do that or unable to do that, I think we're in for a really rude awakening like the lack of a red wave that I predicted nine months before the last November so that's, election. That, that's, that's interesting political advice and, and a couple of other things that you've mentioned throughout this conversation, like you think people on your side and our side, all sides, friggin' all over the place, blue, green, up, down, need to be speaking to each other's emotions. We need to be listening to each other. We need to be talking to each other productively. Um, that's very helpful. Last question. Show's called The Hopeful Majority. Hope gets thrown around willy-nilly willy these days. You know, mm -hmm. there's often this idea that, you know, like, why do we find hope? How do we find hope? What's the purpose of hope, et cetera? And I've noticed in my sort of existence that a, a necessary component of hope, Isabel, is we need to have purpose. We need to yeah. have why. We need to have a really strong answer to what are we doing? Why are we doing it? I asked you this a little bit at the start of this episode, but what is your Why? My why as a creator, as an author, as a public speaker, is to encourage people to have hope in something again in this incredibly hopeless reality that we find ourselves living in today. Far too many people like to scream and shout and mope and cry and make people more divided and angry and try to say that this is the end of life as we know it, which from my perspective probably wouldn't be that bad if we really are living through this horrible mental health crisis and have no idea where to find our hope from, but to give us something to fight for again as a country. I was really young when 9-11 happened. I was three, I think, three or four, and have very little recollection of what that was really like. But from what I'm told and from what ge my generation in general is told by our parents, after a crisis like that happened and our entire way of life, our society was under attack, 
We came together to have something to fight for again, to preserve this thing, this ambitious experiment that you mentioned that nobody has ever tried to accomplish before in creating a country that is a safe haven for everyone, that does preserve human rights for everyone to the best of our ability, that is interested in innovation and taking humanity forward uh, and not looking so far into our mistakes of the past, but what we can do to rectify those mistakes moving forward. And I recently came to discover, just to give you some hope at the end of this conversation, that uh, we think of the founders of this crazy, ambitious experiment as these really old, wrinkly, geriatric white guys that had nothing to do with pop culture or understanding society and couldn't possibly understand what we as young people feeling disenfranchised by the people in power are going through today. Uh, but in reality, the people who developed this country taught us that before we even were a country, and even today, the world is relying on young countercultural punk rock patriots sticking it to the people in power and saying, you know, we deserve a lot better than this and we can do better than this for the future generations of America. On July 4th, 1776, when we signed the Declaration of Independence, James Monroe was 18 years old. Aaron Burr was 20. Alexander Hamilton was 21. James Madison was my age at 25. Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, was 33 years old. I mean, we are talking about a young ragtag group of people feeling disenfranchised, feeling alienated, feeling backed into a corner by the society that they were living in with the most powerful empire on the face of the earth, the British monarchy, which today you might argue is the media or the people controlling the microphone or the people controlling the narrative as the most powerful empire. When those people were backed into a corner, they created the most ambitious experiment the world has ever seen. And every generation since then has relied on young people standing up for what they know to be right, challenging the narrative, changing people's perspectives and doing something that has never been done before. 1776, 1776, July 4th, sounds really, really far away, right? That sounds like ancient history to us in America. That was really not all that long ago in the scope of human history. And if those people could do it at 18, 20, 21, 25 years old, today's 18, 20, 21, 25 year olds also have not only the opportunity, but the responsibility to do this crazy countercultural thing in having dialogue and challenging people's perspectives and changing your own mind every once in a while, but more importantly, taking power back from the institutions that seem to be warping that and taking away our opportunities for freedom, liberty, or just opening our minds in general uh, and putting that power back into the hands of the people. That's why I'm hopeful. Isabel, there's three things that I want to elevate from this conversation that I think people need to need to take away. First is you're willing to critique people on your side. Second is you're willing to deliver messages that all of us can get behind. And third is forgetting for a second what you believe. We agree on how. And the how is how we build that ambitious experiment. The how is how we actually have the conversation. Because if the table doesn't exist, there's no dialogue. You just ended on this note that it is within the power of young people, the power of you listening to reinvent this experiment. And that is what is powerful. I deeply respect your time. I'm so grateful for you to be here. It is currently 8.05 on my side of the coast, which means that I've kept you over five minutes over. <laughs> but as everybody listened to during this episode, if you disagree with Isabel, she's made herself available to you. This is exactly what we need. We need to disagree. We need to listen. If you want to hear more of these conversations, if you want to join the hopeful majority, listen to us, subscribe, Apple, Spotify, YouTube. Am I doing this thing right, Isabel? Is this how, yes, is you this are. how it's supposed to be done? <laughs> and, and lastly, I just want people to know in the audience that 
I jumped out and got going on the social media game. And it is because of people like you, Isabel, that I uh, find the motivation for that. You're generous with your time and you're incredibly supportive. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And if you guys are ever interested in continuing the dialogue, you can find me across social media platforms at The Isabel Brown. The Isabel Brown. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to us. Thank you to Isabel for having an interesting, honest, serious conversation. As always, if you've got questions for Isabel, if you got pushback from me, leave a comment, leave a review. If you're on YouTube, like and subscribe here on Apple and Spotify. Share this episode out because we've got to build a hopeful majority. We've got to fight outrage. We've got to build nuance. Every week we come at you live. Next week is going to be a 4th of July special. I know you're going to want to be there. You're not going to want to miss that because, man, it's an interesting time in our country. But the hopeful majority is going to get through this and build a better, more exciting vision for the future. See you next week.